This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. It's an honor to have Dr. Frank Thomas on the line with us here at Pass the Mic. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a great honor, just a great honor to be a part. Now, whenever I have the opportunity to speak with Black preaching experts, I always like to ask this question because I think it's so foundational and it kind of gives us a look into your personal life and how you process the art itself. But in all your years of listening to and studying preaching, what are a few of the most memorable sermons that you've ever heard? I know I'm putting you on the spot here with this, uh, but what are a few? I, you're like, I can't reduce it down to two or three, but if you can give two or three that off the top of your head are, are the most memorable sermons you've ever heard. Yes, uh, of course. You know, there are many, but, you know, it's pretty easy to come up with three. Uh, my first one, I was a, uh, between my junior and senior year of college, and I was on the south side of Chicago. I was attending Champaign-Urbana University, Illinois. And while I was home, uh, one of our neighborhood friends used to live across the alley from me in Chicago, was shot and killed in a botched shoe store robbery. Oh, my goodness. Hmm. And so we went as a grieving uh, community to um, uh, a church on 83rd Street. It was pastored by uh, Dr. L.K. Curry, and we were grieving. Oh, wow, a legend. Yes, deeply and profoundly. You know, it's nothing like youth grief. You know, we think mm -hmm. we're inevitable, uh, invincible when we are young. And so I sat there, and he got up and preached. And when he finished, I felt better. And I kept wondering, how did he do that? How did he <laughs> take me from grief to hope? Hmm. And, you know, I know now it's the text, but also the preacher, it's gift, it's the grace of God. I know a lot now, but it put me on a, on a, on a search uh, in terms of black preaching, the black church as being uh you know, one of the most powerful instruments for hope that, you know, I've, I've ever seen. That was my, really my first one. My second one was when, uh, it's a lot of them, but I heard uh, Dr. Frederick G. Sampson quote oh, wow. Shakespeare in a, in a sermon. And uh, I am kind of nerdy. And so here I am in seminary. I'm trying to work through my little preaching style. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have a booming voice. I don't sing. I'm not a hooper. <laughs> You right. know, and I like reading, you know, I read a bunch of stuff. And when I heard him integrate Shakespeare into the sermon, it lit something in me that you could indeed be intellectual and still uh, preach. Hmm. And wow. um, uh, Dr. Jeremiah Wright preached a sermon, um, What Makes You So Strong? And hmm. I was a part of Trinity. And that really... Um, moved me and touched me and just saw that you could be vulnerable and could be a preacher. And then the final one, this is four. I heard uh, James Forbes preach a sermon. Um, 
you have not arrived until you reach this place. Hmm. And I got a chance to see that you can be yourself, that you don't have to, you know, really sing or, you know, you know all the traditional um you don't have to get up and sing, you know, Father, I stretch my hands unto thee. You know, <laughs> yes. Nothing wrong with that, but right. that's not your gift or, you know. So what I, I learned in all this is that to be myself and whatever gift a person has, if you work on your gift and hone your gift, there's an audience that will receive your gift. Hmm. So I think we sometimes yeah. make too much of, do I have a big voice? You know, can I, you know, do I have to sing? I'm, I don't have a deep voice, you know, we're all stretching to find to figure out how to hoop and close, you know, all that stuff. And I just simply say to people, uh, work on what God gave you and hone it and treasure it and learn and, and you'll be a wonderful preacher. You know, as a illustration of what you're talking about, I was recently listening to your message at St. Sabina with uh, Father Michael Flager <laughs> at the uh, Seven Last Sayings, and uh, you preached on the saying of Jesus, I thirst. Yeah. And it was so interesting to see, and you know, those Seven Last Sayings events are always so fascinating. And <laughs> it, it's a beautiful exploration, kind of the range of Black preaching and the right. ways in which different people will approach the text, maybe from a way that you haven't heard before. And your style was so unique in the sense that it was powerful and it was reflective and it was intellectual and it was theological, but it didn't seem like you were trying to hoop. It didn't seem like you were trying to, it was just powerful. You delivered it as yourself. And I think there's a, there's a great power in being yourself in the pulpit. And there's a great power in being who God has uniquely made you to be. And a lot of people kind of think that maybe that's not really the standard within Black preaching. They have these conceptions of what it looks like and what it is within the Black church based upon popular perception. What's distinct about Black preaching? And talk a little bit about the range of Black preaching, how there are so many different types of Black preachers and different styles within the art form itself. So let me get the first one, and you have to, you know, you you asked me about you asked me two questions, and I, I wanted to answer both of them, but I'm going to focus on, on one first. I want to focus sure, on the sure. range the range side of it first, that, you know, Black preaching is diverse. You know, they are, they are stereotypical if you watch the movies, and sometimes, you know, they've got a stereotype of Black preaching, you know, the Blues Brothers kind of stuff, James Brown as a mm-hmm. preacher, and, you know, and there are stereotypes of that. But uh, Black preaching has always been diverse uh, since— you know, we have a book entitled uh, Preaching at Sacred Fire, Martha Sims and I, where we chronicle 103 sermons from 1750 to the press. Yes, it's a classic. Oh, my goodness. It's a classic and, book. And you've got all kinds of preaching styles. You know, we've got folk preachers. We've got intellectual preachers. we got female preachers. I mean, it's, the, it's, it's very. A friend of mine, uh, Bishop Larry Trotter, says that God has a, a, a preacher for every creature. And mm, so while the stereotype is that we, you know, we, we sing and we hoop. Now, you know, let me also parenthetically say to you that I wish I could hoop because if, if, if I could, I would. I love it. Yes, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Particularly when it has something to do with the sermon, you know. So, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we actually want the, you know, want the clothes to be a part of the sermon and reinforce the sermon. But I absolutely uh, appreciate hooping. I just can't do it. And so uh, I'm not, I, I don't hear music, you know. 
I have friends, one of my great friends, um, Dr. Gina Stewart. Uh, mm-hmm. she, she is a daughter of thunder. I mean, she thunders in the yes. pulpit. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing what she's able to. She thunders. And so uh, I say to her, you know, Gina, I wish I could thunder like you do. And she says to me, she says, Frank, I wish I could stand there like you stand there and just, mm-hmm. you know, help people. Just, you know, so I think that we all have different gifts and it's easy to look over the aisle and want somebody else's gift. And, you know, I say to people all of the time, hone your gift, hone mm-hmm. your gift. And as a matter of fact, if we ever had all of the gifts in preaching, uh, we would probably get arrogant and wouldn't need God. Come on, so come on. That's I, so I just, true. I just believe that God gives us, you know, weakness in preaching so that we can stay humble. Or as soon as you get so elevated, you get up and preach and you crash. And I think that's mm-hmm. God communicating that this thing is done by grace. And so to keep God focused and there are diverse styles and relative to my own style, I um, I think that you 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 come to a place where um, you're not preaching for the approval of people. Yes. Hmm. That's and, so good. And you're not preaching to get an engagement. You're not preaching to be invited somewhere or you're not preaching uh, so that people can, you know, praise you as much as we all like that. You're trying to get a message across. You're you're caught by the message. And Hmm. so God ministers truth through personality. And so I think that when you give up what you don't have and focus on what you do have and hone what you do have, you reach a point where this is me. They knew who I was when they invited me, you know, right. um, and so I'm just going to go ahead and be me. And, That's good. You know, let the chips fall where they may. And I, I really do. I, I appreciate, you know, I have a little quiet style. You know, I told a friend of mine, I'm going to get up, you know, about St. Sabine. I'm going to go and do my Easter speech. You know, I got a little <laughs> Easter speech because, you know, you got some show enough preachers. And, right. Uh, she always said, well, you were showing sure up preacher. And I said, yeah, I am. I forgot that part. Um, <laughs> right, right. Because you're so busy looking at what you don't have. But God has given me a lot of gifts in preaching, and I'm thankful for them. And I think when you accept them and own them and you step up to the pulpit and, um, y'all, this is who I am. This is how God has given me to give to do it. I'm growing. I, I want to continue to grow. That don't mean my preaching style can't grow. But I'm not going to um, be somebody that I'm not to impress you or to impress anybody. And one more question on this vein before we get to the book. Um, as a young preacher, there are three people in particular who I would consider to be homiletical heroes, people who I've gleaned the most from as far as preaching books, books on preaching. And those three people would be Dr. Henry Mitchell, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert, who we've interviewed on this podcast, and yourself. Mm. And you all have influenced me the most primarily because of your emphasis specifically on Black preaching. Mm-hmm. And that in some circles is odd. Even within Black circles, people shy away. Why do we have to call it Black preaching? Why do we have to call it African-American preaching? Why do we have to say this? And so there's there's an attachment to that label, but I found that it's very powerful and it's very liberating for me to own that. Yes, I am a black preacher. Yes, I stand 
in this legacy, but not everyone understands that. If someone asks you the question, why black preaching? Why do you call it that? How would you answer that question? I, that historically, um, that when the slave master looked at the Bible and the slave looked at the Bible, they saw two very different things. Mm-hmm. And that when a slave master looked at the Bible, they saw slaves be obedient to your masters. And they quoted and used the scriptures to justify slavery, not all, but most, uh, to justify slavery, to excuse slavery. And there are some slaves who looked and slave preachers who looked at the Bible and found the Exodus, tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. And so they began to operate in a liberation ethic. And so you can look at the Bible, but you bring your experience to the Bible. And I value the experience of oppressed and marginalized people because that's basically what we come, we come from and that what we still are. And what I mean by that is that I've always believed that white supremacy is the biggest challenge of the black church. Hmm. As a matter of fact, the biggest threat to white people is white supremacy. The wow. belief hmm. and the, um, the emphasis that um, certain people have more value in this country and other people have less value. Mm-hmm. And so I preach from the perspective of the people who are considered not to have much value. And so I choose text to help build the value, tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Um, mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, and when he came and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim release to the captives, you know, yes. all these traditions. And so I believe that, um, I'm unashamedly a African-American preacher, a black preacher. I am unashamed and unapologetic about that. But that don't mean that I'm exclusive. Sure. That don't mean I can't preach to white, to Hispanic, Latinx, or any other audience. But I think that the African-American preaching style has a unique genius to it, that the beauty of this tradition. So I, I'm. this is what I said, and I said this at St. Sabina that I I was reading a book entitled The Color of Law, Mm -hmm. and uh, it describes the de de jure, which is by law, segregation of America by the American government. And so Mm -hmm. these segregated neighborhoods are not just de facto. They just happened. No, there's some intentional where blacks were excluded from housing and from getting mortgages and staying in certain neighborhoods, redlining with the insurance companies, then these Mm -hmm. white watch uh, groups and neighborhoods to keep blacks out. So we have been able to build levels of wealth, not because we're lazy, but because there have been uh, barriers to us building wealth. And so I stayed in one of those neighborhoods in 86th Street on Chicago, in Chicago, where I I, I grew up. And uh, I I was thinking and saying, you know, I've been disadvantaged, you know, and the progress that I've made, uh, not that I'm a victim or not that I'm looking for a handout, but Mm -hmm. uh, I've worked from a perspective of disadvantage. Well, that's on the social side, but I also was raised in the black church. That's an advantage, (laughs) you know, Mm, this tradition of the black church and becoming and being in this tradition of, of a black preacher has been uh, just absolutely the gift of my life. And I'm so thankful that God has made me an African-American person. I came to know God amongst African-American people. 
their traditions, their histories. I'm glad that I know uh, spirituals uh, over my head. I hear music. I grew up in this tradition, gospel music, Kirk Franklin. I mean, all oh, I can come go on, on Come on, on tell on, it. On. Yes. So I, I, I have grown up disadvantaged in terms of the world's standard, but in terms of the faith tradition of the black church out of which I come, even with all its flaws and its all its shortcomings, I thank God that I'm a black preacher and these perspectives that I'm allowed to receive, share and see. Wow, that is such a great answer. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, as we know, and as we said in the introduction, you are the author of a number of different books. Um, among them, some of my favorites, They Like to Never Quit Praising God, an introduction to the practice of African-American preaching, which I have referenced on this podcast. And then most recently, How to Preach a Dangerous Sermon. <laughs> wow. And so as I I am a Periscope fan of yours. And so you Periscope every Monday morning talking about preaching. And it seemed as though when you were talking about the book leading up to it, it seemed as though there was this anticipation for what this book means in this time, because it seems like there is an urgency from your perspective or should be an urgency for the church to preach dangerous sermons at this time. Mm -hmm. What about dangerous sermons should be central to the church? What's missing that we have currently? What should be central um, in the idea of preaching dangerous sermons to the American church? Well, thank you so much, because we've got milk toast. You know, we, mm. we, a lot of the preaching that I hear is to bless and confirm and support the status quo. Uh, to, um, you know, for example, in, in Mostet, you know, I, I, I want to hear... Um, justice and mercy and compassion and love. So, for example, I, I would preach a sermon in support of health care and uh, for all, because I think that's a moral issue that everybody has a right to health care. So I had a friend who uh, died because he lost his job, couldn't get any insurance and couldn't afford the medication. We didn't know he couldn't afford the medication, uh, but he couldn't afford the medication and he died. Wow. And the preacher at the homegoing celebration said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I said, hell no, this ain't got nothing to do with God. <laughs> Come on. This Don. is a social issue. Hmm. And we're one of the richest countries in the world. And we are not able to provide medicine when we got hmm. a gazillion dollars that average people can't get. So I get up. And I take a position as a moral issue. People want to make it a political issue as if, you know, this is Barack Obama versus free market. No, no, no. This is a moral issue hmm. that people ought to have a right to take their children to the hospital and get care. That people have a right to medication that we can't figure that out. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, we're up preaching, uh, you know, the walking people down the Roman road to salvation, which I believe in. But there's one more step. What about their bodies after they get saved? What about their stomachs? Mm. What about their brains? Mm. What about their education? What are educational needs? That the gospel has to have some visible and tangible social, both critique <laughs> and a social mandate. You know, yes. that this exclusive individual, I got to get my blessing, get my miracle and get my breakthrough. 
God's going to give me, uh, you know, a car and a house and, you know, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. Right. This, Come on. This personal um, piety around materialism is a form of capitalism. And I think that uh, I call that's milk toast religion. And when you get up and you say everybody has a right to health care, when you get up in a church and say everybody is welcome. You see, when I when you when your moral imagination, this is what the book is about, that when your moral imagination includes everybody and you don't um, segment people out based upon, you know, I believe that we ought to have standards. But right. this kind of, um, you know, leaving people out and, you know, uh, God didn't make Adam and Steve making fun of people and demeaning right. mm. people and judgmentalism and putting people down and in, in righteous superiority as if we don't have enough churches with leaders who've made mistakes and who've fallen, mm. who've been caught in illicit relationships and money's been missing, all kind of stuff. That, so let's not, to me, you know, be self-righteous. Let's preach mercy and grace. And that's not that we don't have standards. I'm not suggesting throw all the standards out the door. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, of course. Of course. But I am suggesting that um, my moral imagination includes uh, wide groups of people. So I want every child, every family to have what I have, which is education for my brain. I want every family to have what I have, which is medicine for my body. I want every family to have, you know, food for their stomachs. Mm. I want every family to have hope for their hearts. And I believe mm. that if you don't stand on that side and you, that some people deserve to have it and, you know, we got, they, we deserve it. You know, we, we work and they don't work and we're the job creators and blah, 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 blah. I, I don't, I, that's not, that's the, that's the God of Pharaoh. Hmm. You know? Wow. I, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the, the, the liberating God of Moses. Hmm. And you, you even juxtapose this a lot with, you talk about moral imagination, but you juxtapose it with what you call idolatrous imagination. Yeah, you know, the idolatrous imagination of the empire. Talk right. a little bit about how that is so central. And I think sometimes, and this is the the crazy thing, we when we started kind of talking about justice and liberation and, and things of that nature, it seemed as though people took it personally because they couldn't see how entrenched their view of Christianity was with Western ideals, with the empire, with power, with privilege. And whenever you start tampering with that, whenever you start challenging that in a prophetic way, um, people don't like that. But the reality is a lot of times people don't see how entrenched it is Thank within you. the American church. Can you talk a little bit about how how the idolatrous imagination it shaped so much of the atmosphere for how our churches grew in over the centuries in American history. Well, my argument is that moral imagination, how they see some of these people can't even see others as equal. Hmm. I mean, right. it's very difficult for some people to see black people as equals. Mm -hmm. Yes. And when you, that's moral imagination. When I can't see you as an equal or imagine you as an equal, then I'm going to set up a moral hierarchy. 
And in that hierarchy, some people are going to be at the top and some people are going to be at the bottom. Some people can be over, some people can be under. So the, the, the present more hierarchy that operates in our culture right now is that the employers are over the employees, and that job creators deserve a tax break, and the you know they made the um, the the business uh, owners tax cut permanent, and they put a time mm-hmm. limit on the employee tax cuts. Mm-hmm. So it's the rich uh, over the poor, which is the employer over the employees. It's white people over black people. It's w- men over women. It's our country over other countries. Mm-hmm. It's you know, white people over immigrants. And so now we live out this moral hierarchy. Then we establish laws to ensure that it supports our moral hierarchy. And then we find churches to bless it. Wow. Hmm. So when I say moral imagination, I'm talking about the entire moral hierarchy both the laws that get in on the books that are made to enforce that one group is superior to another group, then the churches that get the Bible and support that, you know, one group is better than. And so now you've got a complete system. And so some of the actions that I see on television every day reflect the more hierarchy that white males are over everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I could go on and on. And so when I get to idolatrous imagination that we live, that the imagination of our culture is we have an overemphasis and over-exaggeration of, of sports heroes, television heroes, right. uh, reality TV heroes, that indicative of that is the fact that we will pay somebody $250 million to hit a baseball, and then mm-hmm. we'll pay a teacher next to nothing. And the hmm. teacher is working with our children. So hmm. I don't know baseball players that are throwing their bodies in front of bullets to protect kids. Right. Come on, Doc. Come on, Doc. But you got teachers who are having to buy supplies on their own money. See, that says something about the imagination and the moral imagination of the culture. So we've ranked sports, reality television. Uh, celebrities. You don't even have to know anything to be a celebrity. You can be a celebrity being famous, you know? Right. And so that culture is then what allows a reality TV star to become the president of the United States. So we don't Hmm. ask substance questions. No, we, you know, we don't ask policy questions. We're not interested in that. We're interested in, we want uh, a disruptor. Disrupt to what is my question. So you disrupt, but what do you have after? I mean, anybody can throw a brick through a window. So how, how are you going to put the window together after you get through? And see, in, in idolatrous culture, we take celebrities, we take uh, reality TV, we take sports heroes, and we blow these people sky high up when the real heroes are teachers and firefighters yes, yes. and police officers that don't abuse their job. You know, uh, these first responders, these coaches who are working with kids, who are volunteering their time. These are the real heroes. And I don't have anything against sports stars or uh, LeBron. I I don't have anything against. It's just we have to look at what we're paying these people versus what we're paying teachers. I'm a teacher. What we're paying Mm -hmm. teachers who are shaping the minds and the hearts of our young people and now who have to stand in and take bullets so they can teach. 
So I think that that is connected to our moral imagination. And so what the book is about is I identify what the moral imagination is, what the idolatrous imagination, and then I give a method because when you challenge the moral imagination of the culture, discernment gets dangerous. Yes. Hmm. And so, now, go ahead. And, and kind of to that point, um, no, no, you're fine. This is this is excellent. I just wanted to kind of draw people's, you know, ideas to to this particular point and element of that. In conjunction with what you're saying, there's an idea that the prophetic is just for people outside of our tribe. But there are people who you reference, particularly Dr. King, who, as we you know, are in the the week we're recording this on the week of his uh, 50th anniversary of his assassination. Dr. King was very prophetic to people within his tribe as well. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to critique from outside yeah. or to outside, but it's harder to critique internally. And you did a little bit of that earlier. Talk a little bit about how important it is for our dangerous sermons to critique our tribe as well. Because it's really, and again, this is probably a, a level of a lack of imagination. But whenever we would say, hey, there is a certain agenda or there's a certain platform politically that we would say is probably detrimental to our lived experience, our bodies, people assume that, oh, well, that means you're just adopting everything from the other platform. And we're kind of like, no, nah, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that there may be platforms that we choose to be more closely aligned with what we feel would best serve the masses and serve the vulnerable people within our society. But we should also be critical and we should also be uh, critiquing prophetically the people within our own tribe. We believe in that. And so how does that play into the idea of dangerous sermons and critiquing the idolatrous imagination? Truth that is applicable to someone else's tribe and is not applicable to our tribe is not truth. If it's the Mm. truth, it applies to everybody. So Mm. if a crime is only a crime when the other group does it, and it's not a crime when your group does it, then that's not truth. Mm. That's tribalism. So we can critique the other tribe or the other group or the other culture. We also can put that same critique, which I think that what Dr. King did is put the same critique on our own culture. Mm. As well, because if it's true, it's true for everybody. If it's only true for one group, then it's not true. So I think that what we do is it's a lie if somebody else tells it. But if my family says the same thing, then it's just us. And, you know, we're protecting us and it's not Mm -hmm. a lie. Well, Mm -hmm. a lie is a lie. The truth is the truth. You know, there's no such thing as, you know, alternative facts. There's one set of facts. <laughs> yes, yes. Come you on. Know? And you can't create your own reality and say it's an alternative reality. Uh, no, that there are objective things in life called truth, called facts, and they apply to everybody. And so if you're unwilling to speak to your own house about the truth, then it you lose credibility to go to somebody else's house. And what Jesus says, you know, you know, people in glass houses don't throw stone. That's not what he said. He said, remove the stone out of your own eye before you mm. log out of your brother's sister's eye. Yes, absolutely. Now, you mentioned earlier that you're a teacher and you run the first ever Ph.D. program 
in African-American preaching and sacred rhetoric at Christian Theological Seminary. Yes. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how the next generation of preachers is more, or I should ask this question, is the next generation of preachers more or less from what you see as a general, you know, consensus, I guess, is the next generation of preachers more or less willing to preach dangerous sermons? I think that the lure of the next generation is the lure of every generation of preachers and it's the the chasing cash cameras and crowds. Hmm. Wow. And if you chase cash cameras and crowds, it will hijack you from your divine destiny to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. And so what seems to be typical to me is that with all of the um, the prosperity and the, 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 the television showcasing of prosperity, that it's very easy for young preachers to want, you know, a big church, want an entourage, all the, the trappings hmm. and are reaching for that and have absolutely no idea what it takes to get that. And then when you get to that point, what it takes to stay there. So, mm. you know, I know some of these folks, you know, I'm, I pastored a mega church, um, two of them. And so I've seen it from the other side. It's not all it's cracked up to be. So it reminds me of Jesus when uh, the Mary comes up and says, um, when you come into your kingdom, can you have James and John on, uh, on your right and your left? Yes. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. You know, you know, for any mind to give, but can you can you drink of this cup? It's a tremendous mm. amount of suffering that goes into these mega churches. Somebody walks the floor at night, late at night, and that's a whole lot. And when you're reaching for it, and if God gives it to you, then take it, receive it, be blessed, and go ahead. So I'm not beating up on mega churches. I'm beating up on the grabbing for that without knowing what the cost is. Hmm. Hmm. And it's a tremendous cost and a tremendous price, you know, that the enemy, Satan does not give up one inch of territory without a fight. So imagine Mm -hmm. the fight to get these large churches. And so um, I'm not beating up on them. I'm just saying, let God give it to you more than grabbing for cash, cameras and crowds. Yes, yes. As you train the next generation of homileticians, and black preachers, what is your hope? What are you training them for? Because I think some people forget and miss the ways in which black preaching and training in black preaching isn't just for the individual. It isn't just for one church, but it's for the entire body of Christ. And then even broader, the nation as well. What's your hope as you train this next generation, this next cream of the crop of black preachers what is your hope that they will do with that education? I will give you the mission statement of the PhD program. We are the first PhD program in African-American preaching and sacred rhetoric in the history of the world. I am privileged to be the principal visionary behind the program. I, I'm at a school with trustees and staff and faculty that endorsed the vision. And so I don't want to pretend like, you know, I did it by myself. No, I did it with a lot of people, but I am the the principal visionary. So we have a mission statement. This is the mission statement. To expose the beauty, the depth, the power, 
the imagination, the history, and the sheer genius of African-American preaching to ignite a preaching renaissance to revive American Christianity in the 21st century. Hmm. Hmm. We believe that black preaching can ignite a preaching renaissance to revive American Christianity in the 21st century because at least in some communities, uh, Christianity looks dead. Hmm. And I think and believe that black preaching and the teaching of black preaching and the doing of black preaching can generate a preaching renaissance to revive American Christianity in the 21st century. That's what I get up to do every day. I'm working on this program. Uh, We have 10 doctoral students. I'm proud of all 10 of them. We are working to get them through get them graduated. We're going to release them. We're also uh, at some point real soon going to um, take a second cohort. And so my hope is that we're creating a movement that we will send out in the next 10 years between 25 and 35 minted PhDs in African-American preaching. And these teachers of preaching will revolutionize preaching to generate, ignite a preaching renaissance to revive American Christianity in the 21st century. (laughs) (laughs) Only thing you need now is that PayPal link. You just need to pass the bucket. You know what? I'm working on that. You know, send me money. (laughs) I need help. No, but thank you. It it is. It is the vision. And uh, I'll say this quickly. Uh, We didn't start the vision with money. We didn't have the money, but money always follows vision. So for anybody out there, you got a vision. Money follows vision. You don't get money and then do the vision. Money follows vision. When people catch uh, a connect that what you're doing is valuable, vital and important, then support, money, volunteerism, all things happen. Yes, yes. Well, Dr. Thomas, before we let you go, I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about the Publishing in Color Conference, which is coming this summer, and you are one of the keynote speakers, and you are a writer, and you are a prolific author. You write books, and it's funny because seeing how often you preach and then seeing how often you do the periscopes and knowing that you're a teacher of preaching, I don't know how you get the time to write books. I don't know where that time comes from, but it seems like you're always working on a book. What's the importance of writing um, in this season? And what do you hope people experience at the Publishing in Color Conference? First of all, there is a woeful shortage of African-American authors being published. So last year I was asked to do a workshop at a conference at Princeton Uh, a writer's conference, and they brought in all kind of authors. And those authors talked about writing, how to get published, their writing ritual, their routines, why they write, what they write. So I saw a whole room full of people, four or 500 people getting excited about writing and their own writing. And so the uh, Brian Elaine, who hosted the conference, talked to me, uh, can we go to lunch? I said, sure. We went to lunch and he said, uh, do you think that it'd be a good idea to have one of these for, you know, to help with the disparity in African-Americans being published? I said, sure. I think that's a great idea. I threw my support behind it a hundred percent. 
So he organized a conference and invited me to be one of the keynote speakers. We'll have several authors, African-American, who um, are going to do keynote lectures on publishing, uh, how, why, what. Hmm. We also have uh, several uh, 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 cadre of publishers that you can talk with. We have afternoon workshops you can take. And then uh, we have it structured so that the keynote speakers uh, spend about mm, 15 minutes. So I do the keynote in the morning and the afternoon. I, I spend uh, 15 minutes with about five or six people in a row, you know, different and talk to them about, you know, what they're doing to try to, you know, bring the person off the stage down into actual lives of people. And so what I'm going to be talking about is uh, I, I believe that publishing or writing is a revolutionary act. And so I write mm. to stay sane. And <laughs> yes, sir. If you're going to write it, you may, well, you may as well write it to publish it, you know. And so I write to publish. So when I'm working on something or I'm getting ready, I write a lecture, I write that lecture to publish. If I'm doing a sermon, I write that sermon to publish. If I'm, you know, write, just doing reflections other than my journal, everything else I write is for, for publishing. I'm going to talk some about that at the conference because we are underpublished. And what that means is that a lot of our genius goes to the grave. I'm going to speak in terms of preachers. And I know my responses are so long because I'm so excited that you have me. So far. Oh, no, yeah, no, keep going, keep going. You know, that so much of our genius has gone to the grave with black preachers because it wasn't written down. It's an oral tradition, which is beautiful and wonderful. But you need scribes. You know, you mm. wouldn't have the book of Jeremiah if Baruch, the scribe, didn't write it down. Yes, yes. So and the same thing with Luke Acts. You know, Paul's doing all this stuff and somebody has to be writing it down. So I'm raising a generation of people to write it down because what happens is that too much of our genius goes to the grave with our preachers. Mm-hmm. And we haven't cataloged. And same with African-American life. We need more authors. We need more writers. And so the conference is targeted at African-American spiritual writers who have a desire to publish, some already who are published, to talk about writing and what's good writing or how you do writing or what's your, somebody asked me, what's your routine? How do you do the same question you asked me? I get up and I write in the morning. So, I mean, all these things. So I'll stop there because I'm very excited about the conference and excited about being on your program. So forgive me for um, going on so long. Oh, no, not at all. We've we've really enjoyed um, our time with you and just hearing your heart and hearing a, a greater articulation of your ministry and so I hear you every single uh, week on Monday mornings on Periscope, where you're talking about preaching and black preaching. And so I'm used to it. And so it's so <laughs> exciting for me. No, I'm just so excited that people in our context can hear you and can be exposed to your work. And in that frame, where can people support you? How do we support what's going on and buy your books directly? Because sometimes people say, don't go to Amazon, go to my website or go to Amazon or what have you. Where should people buy your books? I think um, you can buy them uh, through my website, uh, drfrankathomas.com. Also, I do want you to go up to Amazon because I, I'm, I'm publishing rapidly and my own website. I don't know if anybody else you know, has an experience. Uh, you know, you, you get a web designer and they're some of the hardest people in the, in the world. They're they diff- more difficult to reach than preachers. You know, <laughs> website current kind of keep up. 
also, you know, Periscope, I'm Dr. Dr. Frank A. Thomas. This is Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, I have a YouTube channel, 86 Daughter. I have a ton of material. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk in a minute about the interviews that I did that I posted up on. Yes, yes, please Daughter. do. And people say, how do you get a YouTube channel, now 86 Daughter? Well, I had a daughter who lived nine hours and died in 1986. And so mm-hmm. it's the way... It's my memory and the legacy of her in my life is 86 Daughter. Um, that's a YouTube channel. Um, and I've done a bunch of interviews with preachers. I do. I expand. I'm doing more and more. I did uh, Dr. Jeremiah Wright. I did Dr. Otis Moss Jr. I did um, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, Jeffrey Dr. Johnson. Freddie Haynes. Yes. I did Dr. Claudia Copeland. I did Dr. Teresa Fry Brown. And I'm getting ready to release an interview with Dr. Kevin Wayne Cosby of St. Stephen's Baptist Church at Louisville. Oh my God. That's going to be a dangerous one. That's dangerous. It, it, it is so hot. I can, I'm trying to. I'm trying to get it out of here. It's just too hot. I'm in. I'm in the final edits. And when that thing hits, you want to see that he is a fabulous, fabulous. He tells a story about preaching the eulogy at the uh, funeral of Muhammad Ali. That is hmm. just. I, when I tell you that 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 this brother is a blessing and he talks about that experience, you don't want to miss that. So um, you can, of course, at Christian Theological Seminary, you can get more information on the Ph.D. Um, in African-American Preaching and Sacred Rhetoric, uh, Twitter. I'm up on Facebook. I don't do as much Facebook, but I'm up there. And, um, you know, hit me, reach out and thank you so much for just this opportunity. You provide me a wonderful platform to explain myself and writing and preaching is my life. Uh, I, I've, I've, I'm dedicating the rest of my life to black preaching because black preaching saved my life. Hmm. And so I want to archive it. I want to write it. I want to expose it. I want to show the world that. Black preaching is such a gift. It can generate and ignite a preaching renaissance. And we can revive this seemingly lifeless thing called American Christianity in the 21st century. So uh, thank you. So I'm just you know overwhelmed to, to be with you. And just thank you so much. It's just such a blessing, such a blessing. Dr. Thomas, you are a blessing to us. Thank you so much for being with us on Pastor Mike, and we will continue to support you. And I look forward to having you back on when your next book is released as well. You call, you know what? You call me anytime. I, even you know, <laughs> see, when awesome. you do, when you do dangerous stuff, you you do rabble rousing. So if there's a hue, a hue and outcry, you don't have to wait to my next book. Call me up. I'll come back. I enjoyed myself, and thank you so much. Thank you, Tyler. thank you so thank much you for sir. having me. It's just a blessing. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.